The title of tonight's talk is Instant Karma, Intention, Action, Result, or Our Actions Shape Our Lives. And this is maybe not exactly the classical Buddhist view on karma and its results. Maybe in essence, I hope it is. And my apologies to those of you who have heard this quite a few times. I hope it may still be useful. Karma is a, an essential theme and one, I believe, that is often misunderstood. It's concerned with our actions and their effects on ourselves. And that's an important aspect or factor in on every spiritual path. To be exact, I think it's decisive and essential in each and every life, spiritual or not, conscious or not, because our actions do shape our lives. Karma is important because it plays a role in those areas of our life in which we have certain freedom of choice, the areas which we can, in which we can influence our inner well-being or our inner discomfort and suffering. And that's why it's of such importance in our practice on our path to liberation. Rumi, the Sufi mystic, makes a point here. He says, you are cold, but you expect kindness. What you do comes back in the same form. God is compassionate, but if you plant barley, don't expect to harvest wheat. Barley seeds produce barley, not wheat. So what exactly is karma? Here's a definition from the manual of Abhidhamma. Karma, or kamma in Pali, literally means action or doing. Strictly speaking, it refers to all moral and immoral volitions or intentions. Intention means absicht. A kind of a key word, just in case. It refers to all moral and immoral volitions or intentions with our thoughts, words, and deeds. It's the law of ethical or moral causation. And volitions or intentions include all unconscious intentions too, being by far the majority of all our intentions. So it's not, not just when we know consciously intent that we intend something, but whatever is behind our actions of body, speech, and mind, they have an effect on us. The word karma or kamma refers to action and the intention behind the action. The word vipaka refers to the result 
meaning the effect of the action on the actor, on the person who acts. Karma can be compared to the seed. Vipaka can be compared to the fruit ripening on the plant we have sown ourselves. What this says is we shape our lives, we shape ourselves in every moment. Every experience of each and every moment here is the result of previous conditions and conditioning. And of course there are many, many kinds of conditions. Those who have to do with outer circumstances, those that have to do with our physical and bodily realities, those have to do with the environment and culture we grew up in and we live in, those who have to do with the people around us, near and far, who constantly influence us. So I'm not trying to propose a kind of strict cause and effect process with an almost determined or deterministic lawfulness. What I'm trying to say is through the way we relate to this experience now, we shape, we influence, we condition our inner tendencies in the future, how we feel about an experience, how we relate to it, what we make of it. For example, every time we relate to an experience in a judgmental or condemning way or in an aversive or clinging way, we strengthen our judgmental or our aversive or our clinging tendencies. Every time we relate to an experience in an open, interested, welcoming way, we strengthen our tendencies towards openness, interest, and towards a welcoming attitude. So you can see why the topic is of immediate relevance for us here and now. How are preconceptions, <coughs> or you could say our cognitive habits, condition our way of perceiving reality, may be seen from the following story. See what's going on as I tell the story. <coughs> it's a Saturday night, a man somewhat lonely, strolls into a certain district of a big city. There's a woman sitting at a window. He goes up to her, knocks on the window and asks, how much? She says, 650. He says, isn't that a bit much? She says, come on, it's double insulated thermal glass. 
I don't know what you've been thinking, but <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? We can distinguish ethically or morally wholesome from ethically unwholesome intentions and motivations. Ethically wholesome are intentions which are generous, compassionate, kind, patiently accepting, wise, insightful. Ethically unwholesome are intentions which are aversive in all the shadings, desirous, greedy, deluded. <coughs> and ethically wholesome intentions have a positive or emotionally healing effect on ourselves, on the person acting. Ethically unwholesome intentions have a negative effect on ourselves, on the actor, causing inner confusion, turmoil, and suffering. That's why there's the famous statement, everything rests on the tip of intention. Alles ruht auf der Nadelspitze der Absicht. Which means our inner well-being, our inner peace, or our inner conflicts and battlefields rest on the tip of our intentions, depend on our intentions. Very important point here. Now something I notice again and again in my exchanges with practitioners is the often prevalent confusion with regards to the pair of wholesome and unwholesome on one hand and pleasant and unpleasant on the other hand. They're two very different things. They're related, but they're different. And as long as we're not really very clear with respect to these aspects, we remain somewhat confused with respect to our practice, with respect to its goals, and with respect to how we can reach these goals. Here's an attempt to clarify this I use the word wholesome, heilsam, to translate the Pali word kusala. We could also say helpful, we could say skillful, or ethically positive. That all means the same as wholesome. Wholesome could also be translated as mentally and emotionally healthy or causing happy results. Kusala, or wholesome, is motivated by the so-called three roots of goodness. Renunciation and generosity. Joseph spoke about part of it on the renunciation part. Is one. Then kindness and compassion is one root. And wisdom is one root. Akusala, what is unwholesome, is motivated as the contrary by the so-called three-root kilesa, desire, aversion in all its forms, and delusion, toishong, and all their variations, gross and subtle. 
So un- akusala means unwholesome, unskillful, ethically negative, causing inner suffering for oneself. The result, the effects of this wholesome or unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind are pleasant or unpleasant experiences within us. And as mentioned before, condition our inner tendencies, how we'll act in the future. But with this karma and intention thing, the wholesome or unwholesome, that's the key we need to understand. That's why, accordingly, practice is about the cultivation of wholesome, skillful, ethically positive, inner peace-creating qualities, and about diminishing or avoiding, or lessening, maybe better, unwholesome, unskillful, ethically negative characteristics, which cause suffering, and eventually liberating ourselves from them. And that's clearly very different from meditating in order to create pleasant states of mind and experiences. Our natural, my natural tendency, don't know about you, tendency is to want to create pleasant experiences. Why would we meditate if it's not, or not for that? But that's not what makes sense. What makes sense is to cultivate wholesome qualities and intentions in our mind and lessen the unwholesome ones. Here at this point I feel like I need to clarify another point that can lead to confusion. As I've just been explaining, an important aspect of this practice is to distinguish wholesome from unwholesome and to support and cultivate the wholesome and to lessen or weaken the unwholesome. Yet in the Vipassana meditation, we instruct, and we're supposed to be present and aware, not doing anything whatsoever. It's being mindful, being interested, really seeing what is going on, what is happening, but not to interfere, not to manipulate, not to try experience different from what they are, but to see how they are and what happens to them. Just being present with interest. So how does that work? On one hand, we're saying we should cultivate wholesome ones and we can the unwholesome ones on the other hand we're saying you don't want to do anything you just want to watch looks like a contradiction and of course it isn't but it needs to be understood quite properly when there is interested accepting welcoming mindfulness and it actually truly sees and feels what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the heart, then it is what we could call wise mindfulness or wise awareness. Then it is non-judgmental. It is accepting 
of what is happening. It's highly interested in seeing and understanding. And it's also non-manipulative. And also it doesn't identify so much with what's going on or there's less self-view or sakayadityas, Carol explained last night. This kind of mindfulness is already wholesome. So when we're mindful in the right way, there is already a wholesomeness that is there. Technically it's called right mindfulness or samasati. So when this big thing is, is made about mindfulness, you know, that is good for everything. What is really meant is sama mindfulness. A kind of mindfulness that's already wholesome. And some would say, if it's mindfulness, it is wholesome by itself. It's something I wouldn't agree, but there's different views on it. Whatever it is in our case, it's important that it has the qualities of non-judgmentality and interest and that it's a wholesome kind. So if, for example, if you're with an object, let's say unpleasant sensations or sounds, maybe a knee pain or a noise, and we notice that there is aversion because it's unpleasant, then the weakening of the aversion consists in seeing it, in feeling it, not in judging it and trying to make it go away. It's not, oh, aversion again, bad. I'm always so aversive. It's unwholesome, he said. It's bad karma again. That's not a helpful way. Rather, there's interest. Oh, aversion. Look. Hey, aversion is interesting. Aversion feels like this, and then you see how it feels. Not giving it energy at all, by getting lost in it, or by, but also not giving it energy by trying to get rid of it, but keeping up the wise, right mindfulness. And this in itself is already wholesome. The aversion doesn't get fed, and being impermanent, like everything else, it weakens and eventually fades out by itself. Mindfulness is continuous as much as possible and it is right or wise or wholesome mindfulness. So what is wholesome gets strengthened. In terms of wholesome and unwholesome, to make sure that we're talking about the same thing or understanding the same thing, I list what is called the ten unwholesome actions in most Buddhist traditions. There's three of body, there are four of speech, and there are three actions of the mind, which are quite obviously unwholesome because of the unwholesome intention behind them. And some of them are what we resolve to abstain from at the beginning of the retreat, if you remember, on Saturday night, as was explained by Ursula. 
karmically unwholesome actions of the body are killing and harming of living beings out of hatred or greed. It is stealing, taking what has not been given out of greed. It's sexual activities which are harmful to those involved or to a third person out of desire or craving. That's the bodily ones. The verbal, the four verbal actions are lying, wanting to get some advantage or avoiding some disadvantage for oneself or somebody else. It's slander, talking negatively about third persons. It's harsh speech or offensive speech or hurtful words. And it's useless gossip, meaningful chatter. Four unwholesome verbal actions and the three mental actions is I'm not sure if I pronounce that properly covetousness that's hapkir ill will feindseligkeit und bosheit and wrong views there's several wrong views and I'm not going to go into it but I'm um, one wrong view is the one uh, Carol talked about last night when she spoke about Sakaya Ditti, the wrong view about self or I. The traditional ten wholesome, wholesome actions are the abstaining from these ten unwholesome ones. So not to engage in them is already wholesome. And it's the actions which are motivated by generosity, by renunciation, by kindness, by compassion, and by wisdom or liberating wisdom. The Buddha also spoke of the unwished effects, unwished for effects of unwholesome karma. It's the well-known verses from the Dhammapada, an old text. It starts by saying, mind is the forerunner of all things. The intention, the thought. If a person speaks or acts with unwholesome intentions, suffering will follow that person just as the cart follows the animal which pulls it. The Buddha also spoke of the positive desirable effects of wholesome karma. If a person speaks or acts with wholesome intentions, joy or happiness follows that person just as his or her shadow follows them. From this also follows the statement of an unknown to me author, forgot who it was, if you want to understand the past, look at your present conditions, your present inner situation. Wherever we are now, that tells us something about our own past. If you would like to know the future, contemplate your present actions and the intentions behind them, because they're going to 
be the most important aspect of our own future. Means our present inner conditions have come about through our intentions, actions, and tendencies of the past. Our inner conditions of the future being created now through the actions and tendencies we live out now. For instance, while we sit here, meditate, or listen. Now, according to classical Buddhist views, karmic actions of this life have effects in one or several of the next lives. Now, I imagine most of us don't know whether there is actually such a thing as past and future lives. And maybe we don't just want to believe in rebirth. I, for one, have no clue in this respect. I just stay open. I don't know. Now, does that mean that perhaps the idea of the effects of one's own actions on one's own behavior onto oneself may be irrelevant? Of course not. Not at all. If we live even slightly conscious and with awareness, we will recognize how much we shape ourselves, we shape our lives through our own thought, our own speech, our own actions, and again, the intentions behind it in this very life. That's why I use the title Instant Karma. And that's why we practice. Through neuroscience, we have learned about the plasticity, difficult word, about the plasticity of our brains. Is that correct? Thank you. (laughs) We now also have scientific proof that the neuronal pathways, which we frequently use, get deeper and more pronounced. And this is true now, today, tomorrow, in this year, and not just the next life. What we often and regularly do becomes habit. The intentions and motivations that inform our thinking and our actions most frequently turn into character. Quote again, I don't know who said it, some neuro person. According to the ways in which attention and intentions are applied, new neuronal structures appear. Neuronal pathways and channels change. To quote the Swiss for a change, Gottfried Keller wrote... She or he, he uses he, so. He who sows a thought today will harvest the deed tomorrow. After tomorrow, the habit followed by character. And finally, his destiny. That's why he has to consider what he sows today and has to know that his destiny 
is put into his hands just once. Now. Today. That's exactly what we do in our practice. We cultivate and strengthen what is wholesome and get off unwholesome tracks as often as possible. In this way, not only does our heart and mind get clearer and freer, but our entire personal world changes. And I think it's one thing I'm really fascinated lately with, you know, the fact that we all have a personal own world, not just thoughts and intentions and actions. Try to explain that. In the Maha Karuna Pundarika Sutra, it says, <clears throat> The world is made of actions, of karma, includes the intentions. It manifests on the basis of actions. And this refers not only to physical actions, but also to speech and thought. In the Abhidhamma Buddhist psychology and in the Visuddhimaka, for example, there are references to different types of characters. Joseph mentioned that the other day. Independence on their tendency or their conditioning, they experience the same situation, the same world, in very different ways. For example, when the greed type enters a room, he or she immediately sees those things that are attractive. Oh, nice curtains. Where did you get them from? Oh, new coffee machine. Looks good. Where did you buy the shoes? I like them. Beautiful picture. Who made it? When the aversion type enters the same room, and I have the experience of this, he or she will immediately notice the things which are disturbing or tasteless. Oh God, this carpet really doesn't match the furniture. This picture is actually crooked. It hangs at an angle. It's the same picture the other person saw before but and said, oh, it's really beautiful. It's just how we perceive the world. And when the delusion type enters the room, that's a, the last few years, that's more my experience. He or she doesn't notice anything to start with. It's like, hmm, uh-huh. <laughs> so accordingly, whoever is full of love and kindness or practices kindness, when meeting people or a situation, will have a totally different experience from someone who is fully full of resentment meeting the same people. We are shaping and conditioning ourselves and our lives day in, day out, and it creates our own world. It's, 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 it seems to be the same people, the same picture on the wall, and yet, depending on our, our makeup, it's a different world. We experience a different world. Short story to illustrate this. Thank you, whoever I have it from. 
the old samurai enters the temple, waving around his sword. He stumbles onto the master and screams, You are a pig. The master looks at him and says calmly, You are a Buddha. The samurai is baffled and says, Me? Why? And the master says, Pigs see pigs, Buddhas see Buddhas. Our own inner climate shapes the way we experience the world. In fact, our very personal world. And our only very personal world. We still somehow think there's the real world and we perceive it and whatever, we react differently to it. But they're only personal worlds. If you can't if you don't believe, this is interesting. The U.S. Neuro, neurologist Marcus Reichley claims that only about 20% of the input that reaches our brain lobe comes directly from the outer world. The rest comes from inner memory stores and perceptual process, processing modules. Your brain actually simulates the world. Each one of us lives in a virtual reality with just enough similarity to the actual reality that we don't bump into furniture. <laughs> and there's new kind of research going on where they come up with some kind of evidence that maybe it is 1% that we get from the outer world and the rest is just our own stuff. So it's important, our own stuff makes up a big part of this world. Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, great lay Tibetan master, explains. When our sense organs meet an object, when the eye sees forms and colors, when the ear meets sounds or noise, when we meet sensations or tastes or smells and so forth, meaning when we perceive our world, then this object only triggers the process of cognition and consciousness in the mind, not more. From that point on, the following process is completely subjective, personal, our mind reacts to the object, to what is perceived, influenced and conditioned by all our accumulated or well-practiced habits stemming from our past experience. And when our mind is filled with anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When our mind is peaceful, free from attachment and clinging, and everything we do is in accord with the lawfulness, in accord with the Dharma, then we will experience everything as primordial purity. That's cancer and Pacha. Reason enough to take our wholesome intentions and motivations as our refuge. Is Rumi again. There are three companions 
for you in life. Number one, what you own. He won't leave the house for some danger you might be in. He stays inside. Number two, your good friend. He at least comes to the funeral. He stands and talks at the gravesite. No further. The third companion, what you do, your good deeds, or your deeds, your any kind of deeds, go down into death to be there with you, to help. Take deep refuge with that companion beforehand. And I think it's way before death, this is already the refuge. We cannot control the ways of the world, but we can consistently look at our own intentions and motivations and influence them positively day in, day out. That's also what practice is all about. That's also what matters in meditation. Our well-being rests on the tip of our intentions. Some time ago, I met the Lama Gonsa Rinpoche again after many, many years. We're old friends from our young 20s in Dharamsala, India. He gave uh, teachings during the Night of Religious Religions in Bern. He presented an illustration with regard to wholesome practice. He said, when we suffer because of anger, desire, or envy, or fear, or worry, or whatever... This can be compared to a leak in the roof of our house. Water trips in when it rains. And the image reminded me of our years living in dilapidated sheds and staples on the high slopes of the Himalayas during monsoon, during rain season. So it's dripping. Perhaps we first, and that, doesn't make sense, hopefully, in here so much, but it did in those days. He was living just a little further away from where I was living. I was actually living in a cow shed, so you can sort of get a sense. It's dripping. So perhaps we first try to ignore that it's dripping, hoping it'll go away. You know, even in monsoon, sometimes the rain stops, and it stops dripping. Or maybe we place a bucket under the area where the water comes in. Or we move to the dry side of the room. That's what we mostly did. We looked where it doesn't drip and moved our stuff. Or we carry an umbrella in our room, but that's not very practical. These ways of relating to the problem illustrates our tendencies to suppress or ignore difficult, painful mind states or to blame someone for it, or to somehow manipulate the situation. You know, we do something about it, but it's not that meaningful or effective. Much better, of course, would be very obviously to climb onto the roof, to locate the hole, the leak, and then repair it, fix it. This illustrates in our example here the Careful, mindful, observing, looking, feeling, sensing of the situation, of the difficult mind state, and the recognizing the cause of the difficulty, of the suffering, relating to it in skillful and healing ways. 
I think this is one function of insight meditation. Furthermore, the repairing of the leak corresponds to reducing unwholesome inner tendencies, which cause suffering, and the cultivation of wholesome tendencies or ethically positive motivations, respectively. In order to be able to see, recognize, and transform inner suffering in this way, we need the qualities of cons- that's a difficult one again. conscientiousness, attentiveness, heedfulness, appamata in Pali. Somewhat similar to sati or mindfulness, but clearly aware of the present wholesome or unwholesome tendencies of the mind. It's the one quality the Buddha highlighted in his very last statement before his death, it is said. Work out your own liberation through appamada, which is exactly this type of presence, heedfulness, conscientiousness, which sees what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And Gonzo Rinpoche, still, he compares one of the characteristics of this quality, this type of mindfulness, this appamata, to a traffic light. When our actual tendencies and motivations are unwholesome, it changes to red. We should stop. Do not act on it. As soon as the present tendencies and motivations are wholesome again, it changes back to green. Go. What's important for us is that we really stop at red and that we really go or act at green. Something we might find hard to understand and acknowledge. We practice all the time, day in, day out, morning, noon, and night. And you see that? We think we come here and we practice or we practice in the hall, and then it's the break, noon break. But really, whether we're in retreat or at home, whether we're at work or in vacation, we practice every moment, morning, noon, and night. Either we know that we practice and we watch and we're conscientious and we practice wholesomeness, or we're unmindful and it keeps on practicing. Maybe sometimes wholesome, if our habits of wholesomeness are strong, it'll even unawares still be somewhat wholesome. Or unwholesome, if the habits are more unwholesome, it'll practice unwholesomeness all day long. It's a little scary, I find. Like we're trying to make up for a whole year, maybe, by being really mindful for two weeks. What about the 50 other weeks. It, if we don't practice mindfully, it'll practice by itself. Habit. Either way, we get shaped, we get continuously shaped by ourselves. 
In this also not only big decisions matter or important actions. Like I think it's important that we see in, in when we have big decisions or, or choices to make, we become conscious, we become aware, and we try to choose wisely, hopefully. But what matters is actually every thought and every action of each moment, whether we like it or not. Also, the small seeming unimportant in the movements matter. That's in the nature of our brains. It's the nature of our minds, as we have seen before. It's expressed in the two verses of uh, Bipatrul Rinpoche. Do not take lightly small unwholesome deeds, including thoughts, believing they cannot, can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain of hay. Do not take lightly small wholesome deeds, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water can, one by one, in time, fill a giant pot. Exactly, this is one essential aspect of our practice here. And that's what the Dalai Lama refers to when he says, the only thing I can depend on is my sincere motivation. Over and over and over what matters. The Sufi mystic Hafiz says, and ingredients here are, are the zutaten, are the intentions behind our deeds. It says, you own all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. Don't mix them. You own all the ingredients to turn your life into joy. Mix them. Mix them. A last point, also quite important one, about the development of virtue, the development of these wholesome qualities, and about liberating insight. When we are imprisoned somewhere in some tough jail, it's certainly desirable and good when we can improve the living conditions, both for ourselves and our co-prisoners. That's helpful. That makes sense. should be done. Yet ultimately, it's all about getting out of prison, about freedom, about liberation, not just about improved conditions of detention. To realize this freedom, this liberation, we need insight. We need insight into the actual nature of all that exists so that we stop identifying with ourselves, with I, with body, with feelings, with emotions and mind, with our entire world, what we practice here. We can be so busy with self-improvement, with problem-solving, with doing good, and in one way, because we want to cultivate metta, we want to develop 
physical qualities. Sometimes we forget that the endless improvement is not liberating in itself. It's the seeing and understanding of, of what experience is altogether and changing our ways of relating to it. That matters. Sometimes we really forget that ultimately it's about waking up from the prison into freedom. And that kind of freedom is always here already. So it's just to not forget to remind ourselves of this. I find it interesting in, in the group uh, interviews. You choose what you want to talk about, isn't it? Everybody comes in and we say, how is it going? What's happening? And then you choose. It's interesting to see what we choose. We can choose talking about the worst problem we have. Sometimes we have to, but sometimes there could be more interesting things. We could talk. One teacher said, I'm interested in your best experience of this day or of this last two days. Interesting. Or we could talk about how we explored, what we saw, what we did with the uh, suggestions Carol had, or what we did with the suggestions um, Joseph had the night before, and what came out, what we saw. So if, you see how we look, what we do with our practice, what our perspective is on all this. It's not automatically given. It's an interesting choice we can make. Yet, independently of how free or how unfree we are now at this point, for ourselves as much as for our fellow beings, it is relevant how we think, what we express, how we act. Because our actions not only shape ourselves and our lives, but also affect the lives of many others and of our world and our world. I'd like to close with Dwayne Elgin. There's no one who can take our place. Each of us weaves a strand in the web of creation. There's no one who can weave that strand for us. What we have to contribute is both unique and irreplaceable. What we withhold from life is lost to life. The entire world depends on our individual choices. That's why it's so important that we live our lives with wisdom and with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.